Bob's Red Mill, believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Why Food. This is episode 18 of The Food Academic, and this week we're here with Daryl Mosier from the Culinary Institute of America. I was very lucky to go up and visit Daryl this week and see the surroundings of the Culinary Institute of America, the wonderful courses that they provide and the wonderful education that they serve for the budding culinary students of America. Daryl's a professor of product knowledge and applied food studies. And in the conversation, he discusses how he worked in his youth at IBM, then transitioned to open up his own farm, worked there for a few years before beginning his career as a professor at the Culinary Institute of America. He lays bare what is so important about the food system at the moment, what the Culinary Institute of America offers, and what the future he sees for the food system in America. Here we are, looking out onto the beautiful Hudson here, Daryl. Um, this must feel like a second home at this stage, now that you've been here nine years at the CIA. Yeah, I mean, being from the Hudson Valley, uh, having this opportunity relatively close by, I live in Rhinebeck, just uh, really two towns up from Hyde Park here, it's uh, it's pretty easy duty, pretty comfortable. Yeah, it must be a joy to come in here and see what's going on every day. I, it's my pleasure to have come up here to, to see you today for it, because it's the first time I've been at the Culinary Institute of America, heard so much about it, but... The facilities are incredible. It really fosters great inspiration for the students, I can imagine, because so much of it is, is hands-on. You've got so many good facilities. You've the opportunity to actually go out and cook in real restaurants where real people from the public will come and eat. So you're not living, which is so often what happens in universities or in colleges where you live in this hub and then the reality is so far removed from it. You actually get a twofold. You get the theory and then you get the practical side of it here. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's, it's a world-class institute. And it's interesting because, you know, prior to working here, uh, I was a producer, grower, and the color is one of my better accounts. So I was down here virtually every day making deliveries, and I, I knew it was special. I had a good relationship with a number of the people here. But it wasn't until I, I got an opportunity to work here that I really understood how special it was. And in particular, it's that hospitality focus. I mean, that's such a big part of our industry. It's really a nice place to come. People, obviously, we interact very professionally, uh, cordially. Uh, and in general, you know, our goal, not just for ourselves, but our students, is to make people feel good about themselves for the time they spend here. Absolutely. And I had that pleasure walking around, chefs coming out and meeting me as I walked with you. It's a great place. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you first came here, what were you teaching, first of all? Hey, when I came here, I taught a class uh, called Product Knowledge, which I still actually teach today as part of my workload. Uh, it really was an ideal class for me. It's an ingredients class. So essentially, and it's a class that all students have to take, and they take it in their first year here. It's a class that teaches them uh, those things, those produce items principally that they're going to use here in the school or in kitchens. And it isn't just a cursory view. We, we talk about those ingredients in some detail. Uh, the objective of the class is largely identification, so they know the difference between a, a sunchoke and a salsify, for example. But more than that, it's once they know what the ingredient it is, they need to be able to evaluate it critically. In other words, they need to look at it and say, "Does if I use this particular sancho, does it have the characteristics that will allow me to be successful in my implementation or my intended use? So it's identification, it's selection, and then the third piece is use. I mean, if they've never seen a sun choke, you know, the, the obvious question is, you know, what the heck do I do with that? So, uh, and we do it for fruits, vegetables, dairy, cheese, uh, fungi, nuts, and uh, it's a really good starting point for the students. That's an in-depth topic, though. Where did you get the knowledge to, to have so much information on so many different produce items? 
Well, I grew probably, uh, in terms of things you grow here in the Hudson Valley, I probably grew 60 or 70 different vegetables at various times on the farm. So I had a pretty good insight, and I marketed them. So obviously, if I'm selling something to a chef uh, and have a good relationship with the chef, the chef is going to tell me you know, the characteristics that they're looking for, when I should pick it in terms of maturity, what size they're interested in. So I had a lot of knowledge, but there's a lot of good books uh, the internet was a good resource, and the faculty here at the school. I mean, obviously, if I was teaching something for use in a kitchen down the line, I'd go and talk to the chef, try to get an understanding of what their intention was with it. So it's a fairly integrated program. And in general, I can say the students, and surprisingly, you'd think it's an easy class. It's fairly challenging. For I them. imagine, yeah, because and, uh, do, no, yeah. do you get your hands Do you get your hands on with the... Yeah, the, every, we bring every item into the class. They handle the item. They don't always get to taste it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But they get uh, it, it's sensory because food. I mean, what's nice about food is it appeals to all our senses, right? And for them to just look at it, you know a good produce textbook, for example, and look at a picture, you're only using you know your visual sense, and that's not complete. So the ability to actually you know to cut it, to look at it, to smell it, to do all these things is a, it's a big deal. Yeah, and the responsibility of the school is something that I'm very interested in because. I feel like the responsibility of CIA is far more impactful than a lot of other places where people will go to school because they're learning so much. They're got to be the people that are going to go out and they're going to provide food for so many different people. But it's not just going into work in restaurants. They can go and work in so many different fields. Um, I'm back probably, you know, a quarter of a century ago. I'm sure you went to culinary school and you came to learn about cream and you came to learn about certain sauces and, and how to cook beet and how to cook fish. But CIA is totally different now. The the impact that they have on the students that come here is far broader. Well, certainly the opportunities change. And like any good university, you need to adapt. But fundamentally, in those first two years, it really is. You know, it's, it's technique, it's skill, it's knife cuts, it's heat applications, it's, it's cooking technique. Uh, we, to a degree, there's still, you know, the mother sauces, they still get an awareness uh, because there is a lot of history, and I don't think we ever want to forget the history. Absolutely. But, yeah. it, but it is absolutely uh, primarily, at least for the first, the, our associate's program, a very applied education. And the point is, so they can be successful, uh, and they can be uh, a good employee, capable, when they move out there into the industry. They're not going to lead a lot of time with support from a, a chef. They're ready to go. Yeah, because because it is it is a cultural business. Once you get out on the ground and once you're in a kitchen, you're only as good as the skills that you have there. It's very hard to start to, to perfect the skills and start to get better when you're in a restaurant. You're expected to have them and then learn what's demanded of you when you're there. But one thing that I find that's great here is is definitely with the courses that you do and with the new course that you've developed now, the focus on sustainability and the focus on a true line of thought of your food, that you're not looking at the food that's come in from the distributor today and how you're going to use it. You're thinking about it before it came to you, before the distributor brought it, and you're thinking about what's going to happen after it leaves the plate. Well, that's absolutely one of the biggest changes, I think, in the industry in general, is we have more of a sustainability focus. There's been a number of surveys across the industry. What's the primary area that we should be paying attention to? And it changes from time. Nutrition has been a big deal for a long time. In most polls today, sustainability is uh, its the focal point. It's the things that, get, that we pay the most attention to. So as a consequence, we, we're moving in that direction. And it isn't just that we should be doing it because it's the right thing to do, but the young people today, they have that awareness. They're predisposed to especially the social component of sustainability, they're really aware of one another and they want to make good choices and do the right things. So, yeah, so in that sense, uh, even in my product identification class, uh, besides talking about the ID, the selection, and the use, we talk about some of the consequences of the production of some of the things. The great importance of using things maybe only in season when it grows naturally with very few inputs because nature provides it versus using an item that had to be kind of artificially supported to make it available. So it, it's... When, when, when do you think that became such a common and accessible idea that you can get any food any time of the year? It's been a number of years, certainly now. <laughs> uh, and, and, of course, if you think globally, uh, depending on economic means and where you are, it isn't the case for everybody in the world. But here in the U.S., it is, it is largely the case. Uh, and I'm not certain that's a good thing. I mean, that's one of the things we have to talk about. Now, obviously, in a hospitality industry, 
you you meet the needs of your guests. But what we're seeing, there are niches where the guest needs are changing. There's guests that, uh, you know, they go they value a chef or a restaurant because they source things from the local community. And if they didn't do that, they would go elsewhere. So it's kind of cyclic. It's working. We're getting good support, not just from within, but we're getting it from our customers as well. Yeah, and well, for a customer that's going to a restaurant, you're guaranteed certain aspects of the food if you're going to get it on a seasonal basis. You're guaranteed flavors, whereas oftentimes, I remember when I was managing a restaurant, um, avocados were, the, were the, the crucifier because one week they would be $36, two weeks later they'd be $96 because they were now out of season, but they were on the menu for the year-round menu, and we had to get them. They were crap. Often, sometimes we even had to get frozen avocados in that had been stored away for months but it was it wasn't a very good way to do business and I feel like that people are starting to move away from that they're starting to shift away towards seasonal menus now granted that's more so in urban areas where you know the restaurants are of a different kind of caliber or a different they they have different interests I think in rural areas they're probably still following the kind of mass production model I would agree, and it's kind of interesting. You know, who's leading? Is it really is it the chef that, because of their vision and because of the, their understanding of the food system, they're trying to educate or promote a certain type of menu, or is it actually customers that are have the demands that the chef is being required to meet? I think it's kind of coming together from both ends, which is a good thing. What's the what are some of the major culture shifts that you've seen since you've been here for for nine years? You know, be it from the from the students that have come in. You know, as you as you mentioned, talking about sustainability with a focus on that. Well, I think from the get go, I mean, most of the students come in and they're, you know, although many of them are very young, and like any young student at any university, uh, they aren't certain about their future, but they have a passion for food and they've had good experience with food and they think this is the the right course for them. Uh, maybe when I was, you know, nine years ago, they were probably really more focused on just the, the real details, the specifics of being a chef in the kitchen. And today they're starting to think about some of the bigger picture items. You know, they're interested, again, in all elements of sustainability, the natural resource impact with choosing a certain food, the cost of... Uh, of, of the labor is it fair trade in terms of how who's producing this are, we, are they being taken advantage of so they're looking at it in a much more holistic manner than they did and that's a good thing I don't know where they got that experience it seems to be just ingrained in the millennials and it probably has a lot to do with their access to information through technology but they they have a little, they're a little more worldly they have more of an awareness so obviously we have to support them there and meet whatever need they have yeah, it's funny. I've seen one chef in particular, David Chang. I saw something that he wrote about recently where he said, he he didn't say it, but he, he acknowledged the argument that is around with uh, established chefs, that there are no good chefs anymore. And their argument that there are no good chefs anymore is that there are no chefs like there were in the past. So we have the Bocuse restaurant here, and what they're looking for is they're looking for guys like Paul Bocuse or Daniel Balud to come out on the scene or Mario Batali but these guys are old school guys they're different cooks and as you're saying the cooks that are coming out nowadays have a much broader opinion of food it's not simply that those old school techniques that have to be perfected or changed or irked in certain ways they, they, they want to they appeal to so many more different needs well certainly there's a subset of students that that's their, that's their ideal they want to they want to emulate those chefs that you named. Uh, other, you know, a lot of chefs, I mean, chefs in, in general, they're creative people. Yeah. So they want to kind of have more influence. And it's just uh, it's just a nice mix. And uh, with the amount of students we have here, um, the students get the exposure from one another. They network with one another. And at some point in time, they they come up with their vision of their person, you know, how they're going to be as a chef. And, you know, we give them... We basically give them the support. We give them a really rigorous education that allows them to be at a a strong position to do whatever they want. But where they go from here sometimes is uh, is it's entirely in their yeah, hands. Yeah. And on the on the discussion of product or the discussion of evolution, um, with you also being here for nine years, your courses have evolved, and you started a new course in the past year. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, so what we did about a year and a half ago, uh, we have a, a two-year degree, which is in our, our applied associate's degree, where we really teach them the skills of the kitchen. We also have a four-year degree or a bachelor's program, and that's where the, it's kind of the next level. 
generally it was focused on the operations of a kitchen, so a real strong business management focus. What we've done now is we've, we've added two new focal areas. We have a culinary science, which is a new area, and we started an applied food studies program. And I was involved with the, uh, the startup uh, applied food studies, and that's a really an exciting program because what it does is it takes a very applied education and tries and an understanding of food and tries to meld it into a more uh, wide liberal arts view of food. I mean, we look at culture, anthropology of food, uh, ecology of food, sustainable food systems. We look at basically the big picture of food. And, uh, and it's been fairly successful. There's a lot of interest. I mean, once, and you think there would have to be. Once you become comfortable, you're confident, you know you want to be a chef, now you, you, it begs the bigger question. How, my personal value, am I doing a good thing for my community? Am I doing a good thing for our environment? So they're thinking, you know, they're thinking kind of outside the box. And I'm sure with running a course like that, it entitles you to think outside the box a lot as well because... Like these things now, in amongst that, such as food waste, which is a major, which is a major talking point, where people are trying to understand how they can curb food waste or how it can be used as a secondary use. Is that something that's that's of concern for you? Oh, it absolutely is, and and I think you know, well, it, there are statistics that say that our amount of food waste on a percentile basis has been increasing over the last thirty years. It has always been somewhat of a problem, but I think in general, if you look talk to a chef twenty years ago. It wasn't. Uh, they weren't too uh, knowledgeable about the percentage or about the, the amount of waste. I think today people understand uh, really well that uh, the statistic: the forty percent of our food that is produced never gets consumed. And you know, which is hear, an enormous amount. When you of hear food. that number, especially if you're involved in the food industry, it, it causes pause. You have to understand how can that be. And moreover, the next question is. What, as a chef, what is my role, or as a food professional, what is my role? How can I ameliorate that? How can I somehow get under the covers and, and make um, that... Where's the majority of that food waste stemming from? Uh, well, the majority of the waste actually occurs in the either the retail or in the home. About Out of that 40%, about a quarter of it occurs there. But it occurs throughout the system. I mean, right from the get-go, the farmer's producing it. That uh, when they go to harvest, it doesn't meet a grade or a standard. I mean, we are, as a public, we have very high demands in terms of perfect, perfect, fresh and produce. And that's, that's not nature, of course. There's some percentage that isn't going to be perfect, isn't And typically, so we don't harvest those. In reality, that's probably the best place. I don't think that should be the case. I mean, and there are movements. There's labels like ugly fruit now and, and yeah, it's, markets at discount. It's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's coming to the UK where they, they, they discount the ugly fruit. Yeah, so that's a good thing. But in reality, if, it, if you're going to waste it, that's where you want to waste it. Leave the nutrient there, get it in the ground, back into nutrient cycling. Because once you pick it, you know, you, once you get the labor involved picking it, you got an economic cost. Once you hydrocool it, once you pack it, once you ship it, now you got fuel cost of transportation. If it's an item that's going to be processed, it's you know you got all your processing costs. And the later parts of the life cycle where uh, waste occurs are much more costly on our overall environment. Uh, if, you know, you can look at things we call life cycle analysis today, where you basically just analyze something from essentially A to Z, and the farther you get into it, when you reject something, you've accrued those much earlier costs. So that's a huge problem. Uh, there's a lot of efforts. I mean, even the, our government's aware, certainly, and they're involved. The EPA last, uh, I think, October 2015, so two years ago, they put together, uh, like the old uh, food pyramid for nutrition, they did a waste pyramid. And they have the recommendations, I think it's six or seven layers, but it basically steps you through and if you have waste or you're interested in the waste problem these are the things you should consider and at the very top of the pyramid obviously the first thing is if you're going to waste it don't grow it that's pretty obvious right. uh, but after that if uh, if it is going to be wasted then find see if there's somebody out there that has need is there a human that you can feed that would be the next best thing you can do I mean, we already have it we might as well try to feed someone uh, if you can't feed someone can you maybe feed one of our production animals? I mean, we're investing a lot of agricultural input into growing grains and feeds for animal proteins. Why not use our waste stream to offset that? Uh, I think you step down another layer. It says uh, if you can't feed people, if you can't feed an animal, is there 
a co-product? Is there, is there something you can do with it that has uh, utility? Can you uh, make clothing? Can you uh, uh, create energy? For example, a good example would be th this concept of uh, anaerobic digesters. Kind of in their infancy, there's a few of them, but basically they take organic products and they break them down with bacteria and one of the byproducts is methane, which is basic uh, natural gas, so fossil fuel. And they actually use them to uh, drive turbines and create energy on our grid. So, I mean, there's other things. Uh, th and then composting. We've got a huge problem. Composting is, is basic. It's natural. It's what happens in the forest. But because of our food system and the way our waste is localized, typically in urban areas, uh, we don't have a good means for composting. In fact, I've seen uh, good statistics that say only 3% of all the food in this country get composted. And really what that means is that nutrient, that vital nutrient that should be recycled in nature, isn't getting back into our natural system. Uh, and worse yet, really it's, worse. It's definitely, it's definitely one of those things that never really reached the same kind of heights that, that the recycling message did. When recycling came out, it was in your face. People were very much so aware of it. Composting was never something that really got plastered to the public as much as recycling did. Well, I think it's, it's because mechanically, it's not that it's difficult to do it. It requires space. It requires uh, consolidations. I mean, think about food waste, mostly water. So it's a huge cost associated with moving it from place to place. But your point is well taken. If you look at municipal solid waste going back as little as 20 years, on a percentage basis or by weight, it was largely things like paper, metal, wood. And now that we recycle, they have become relatively minuscule and as a consequence, by weight, food waste is the largest component by far of municipal solid waste. Yeah, because we grew up in a household where probably when we were younger, recycling was never part of the agenda. Um, and then once we got to a certain age where it was, it was very obvious and you would go to other people's houses and there was a recycling bin and you would ask once you then, as you got a little bit older, where is your recycling bin looking for? Because it was in your face. There was there was national ads that were put out there so that you knew. In Ireland, it was recycle, re, recycle. I can't remember what it was. It's left my head now. But it was it was there, and you would always remember it. Whereas composting never really became that prevalent. And I think, like you said, the reason is is that it's that bit more difficult. Um, probably the 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 bodies that, that that have the power to deal with it aren't at a stage to handle. That amount of composting, if it was to come to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know obviously I'm interested. I've been reading, but there are some startups, there are some interesting models uh, where they're looking to, uh, for example, here in the Hudson Valley, there's a startup. They're looking to collect as much food waste as they can from whatever venue, uh, kind of consolidate it, but rather than composting it and having a single compost facility distributing it and, and getting farmers on board, so they just bring off. These roll-offs, these twenty-ton roll-offs, and dump them out on a farm, and it's the farmer's responsibility to actually make the compost to turn the, and then they have the value of capturing that nutrient. Uh, so there, there, there are some good models. Of course, in reality, what really happens is now the food waste is being landfilled, and it, it's just a tragic in terms of the consequences, the externalities. Uh, you break down food waste anaerobically, you give off that same methane, but we don't capture it. And when we look at things like greenhouse gas, a lot of people are obviously aware of where we are with carbon dioxide and the increase, but the methane is a huge component, and a lot of that is from landfills. Uh, the anthropogenic piece, in other words, man-made, is our waste in landfills, and it's our production of, of beef. You know, it's just 40% of all of the methane in our atmosphere. So we are... As you we were saying earlier, that's a topic that the vegan movement are extremely uh, prevalent and, and backing fer ferociously. But it is something that deserves to be given more acknowledgement than than just carbon dioxide that that gets all the notice um, in the media. Talking about yeah. talking about meat production is a huge thing. Yeah, and it isn't just vegans or vegetarians. Uh, you know, a lot of people are interested in their personal health and nutrition. There's been a lot of studies, so it's kind of being attacked again from both sides. Uh, you know, beef is wonderful, it's delicious, we probably consume too much of it. Uh, and, you know, you're seeing in our industry, you're seeing the protein component of the plate getting smaller. Uh, you're seeing more plant-forward or vegetable-type options. And so these changes are, they're, they're playing a role, they're making a difference, no question. Yeah, in terms of the nutrition aspect of CIA, that's something, that's that's... That's a notion that's been brought forward for less meat to be on the plate here. Yeah, we've done a lot, not just with through our education program here, what we model in our classrooms and kitchens, 
but through uh, this Menus of Change, which is kind of a outreach uh, seminar that we run where we try to, industry-wide, we try to influence, and that's been one of the big topics. Yeah, Plant Forward is, uh, is fairly well accepted, uh, and it's... Uh, and as it rolls out, of course, with the large populations, it, it, it makes a difference, certainly. I mean, that's the thing that I think one thing that comes out of our education here, and especially the, the newer class that I'm teaching, is, and you hear it all the time, people understand there's problems, but they think as individuals they are not consequential. And it really turns out when you look at some of these things, certainly choice is huge. Your choice makes a difference. And even on an individual basis, the difference can be measurable. And uh, once people have that message, they feel empowered. They think, well, all right, not only am I changing, but I'm doing something good that can be measured. And, and whether it's going to be our water's going to be cleaner, we're going to, our temperature change will s- slow, uh, uh, you know, just a number of areas they can evaluate. Yeah, that's something that I want to talk about a lot more about food choice and the impact that people can make from their decisions. But before we get there, we're just going to go to a quick break. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job, and, and obviously it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. All right, guys, welcome back to the second half of Why Food. I am here in the Culinary Institute of America in upstate New York with Daryl Mosher. Daryl's a professor, and he's been here for nine years. Uh, just before the break, we were discussing the, the, the responsibility, the ethos, the ethos of the school and the programs that he teaches, and I suppose the impact that it's going to make to students as time goes by, and hopefully that they will be the leaders in the industry to make the changes necessary in food. And just before we went to the break, we were talking about food choices which is something that is crucial because, as you said, a lot of people, even the students here, but a lot of people in general, feel that they don't make an impact based on their choice. Very similar to the same thing that we heard during the general election, that your vote doesn't matter. It's just one vote, but each vote does count. Similarly, each dollar counts because you, as a customer, buy food. You're the one that dictates the trends. For example, Walmart. We can see how Walmart have varied their produce massively. They're focusing on organic produce hugely, and that is based on the consumer because they know that that's what the consumer wants, and the market dictates that. We as consumers dictate it, but often we feel that we're laid rest at the hands of, of, the, of the retailers. Yeah. I mean, 
it's almost difficult to comprehend when you think of things on the on the macro level or a global level. I mean, you mentioned Walmart. Uh, Walmart has made some dramatic changes. It's done a number of good things. They have a number of sustainability initiatives. But in terms of their scale, I mean, I was looking at some data last year. I believe they had essentially the equivalent of a single transaction for every person on the planet. They did essentially 8 billion transactions. So we... Those are the players that we have to get involved too, because they can be truly influential. In terms of our students here at the school, when they get out of the real world, of course they are the leaders in this industry. Not just in terms of by, uh, in terms of how they're acting, but they're the thought leaders as well. So it's critically important that they have at least an awareness of many of these things that we're talking about, because they are they are no question going to uh, influence where we head with this industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose I, I kind of want to get back to that in a little while. Before we get back to that, I want to talk. I want to talk more about you and your your past before you came to CIA. Sure, it's very interesting. I have to think because it kind of it, it, it kind of feeds into the culture of back in the day when you were growing up. So you worked for IBM for a long time, fifteen years. Is that correct? Yeah, fifteen years. I uh, graduated from college, uh, basically nineteen eighty, and you know that point in time. Kind of the mindset was uh, apply what you learn, uh, you know, make as much money as you can. Uh, that was basically the model. I mean, that's and you were in it for the long haul. The idea yeah. was once you got in the job, yeah. that was the job. And uh, you know, it was certainly a good job. It was a good company, and I was able to do really well. Uh, but after about ten years, uh, I got a little bit antsy. It, it just didn't seem real to me. You know, and, and really, technology is it's kind of once removed. It's not you're not interacting on a physical basis, a virtual basis. And we had bought a farm, uh, my wife and I, and to come home every day and just think about what could be, uh, we kind of uh, you know just hypothesized what might we might be able to do. And little by little, I came to the point that you know, darn it, we were going to do it. And uh, what, what did you start off with when you had the farm? What, what did you start off by okay, doing? We bought a house in 10 acres, and it was part of a lot, much larger farm, but it had the barns, it had a nice area to grow things, uh, had a very nice house. My wife liked the house, that's why we bought it. Uh, and then while I was working at IBM, I bought another 50 acres that were adjacent, part of the other farm. So we had a lot of land to work with. And it wasn't so much that we wanted to farm. It, for us, we, th- we had this lifestyle vision. And, you know, working in industry, especially a competitive industry like computers, was really hectic, long hours, a lot of traveling. Just the concept of being able to be home, stay on a farm, involved every day directly with the children at that point in time. I think we'd had our, our third child. And we decided, I decided anyway, that it was time to try it. And fortunately, you know, I'd had a good job. I didn't have a lot of debt, had some money saved. It wasn't the risk that probably a lot of people thought. Uh, and it was extremely rewarding. I had always kind of had a bent towards nature, natural resources. I loved the outdoors, and I was fairly starved for that. And uh, getting in the farm, it was just, uh, it just did something for my soul. And fortunately, the timing was great. Being in the Hudson Valley, the and, you know the front end of the farm to table movement, uh, a lot of chefs in the valley, many of them graduates of the school who had got their first taste of farm to table and seasonal while they were here at school, uh, they became a really good audience for me. And uh, the marketing was really easy. The challenge was growing something that they really wanted. What what did you, so what did you start out when you decided to uh, that this was kind of going to become your profession? Uh, we, I mean, I think we we started big. That's how we did things. Uh, we uh, we probably grew fifty different vegetables the first year, but our niche turned out to be at least initially, and probably still today, was potatoes. And and just having business experience and have looked at books and things, we we started with heirloom vegetables, which worked really well because. The big point was there was no competition. I mean, if somebody wanted a certain type of fingerling, there was no one growing them but me. If they wanted an all blue or purple potato, I was the only one growing them. So, so I, I kind of created a niche with that, and it, and it worked out really well. Uh, sold lots of places in the Hudson Valley, and I moved my potatoes in particular down into the New York market through some of the, either some other growers that travel down there, or there are a couple of uh, middlemen that work here in the valley. So, uh, so it worked out real well. And just from that point on, 
uh, we became really inquisitive about all aspects of agriculture. Uh, we I leased in. What kind of a farm did you did you create from the get go? Because you know you had a few different options to go through. Did you were you very was was the organic movement something that was big at that stage? It, well, there wasn't there was an organic movement. There was not the federal standard for organic at the time. Uh, I was a little indifferent. I I did. You know, I was aware of it. I, I didn't think necessarily it was what I absolutely needed to do. But I will tell you, we transitioned very quickly into an organic approach. And it was largely because of the, the farm was a family farm. And our children were involved in almost every aspect. Uh, one of the great dangers I think of when I think of synthetic pesticides is their toxicity. Uh, and, and really, you know, I'd like to believe the toxicity doesn't exist in the marketplace. But it's... It's a time of application. It's certainly toxic, or if it wasn't, it would be killing insects and causing problems. So I couldn't, you know, it just wasn't tenable to have my children in the field with me after we had sprayed. So we actually kind of skipped the organic and made a decision that we would go completely spray-free. So we did not use any pesticide, organic or otherwise. And uh, and it really, uh, and I'm glad we did it. There were some challenges, but there's techniques. I mean, there's companion planting that you can cover crops with a, a, a synthetic cloth. I mean, there's a number of different ways. Was it was it easier to grow potatoes if you were going to go down that route? I mean, when I say easier, I mean, was it easier to choose potatoes compared to many other types of produce that you could go for? No, but we were very fortunate with potatoes. I mean, potatoes, there's, there's a number of, uh, there's a white fly and there's mostly the Colorado potato beetle. For whatever reason, we never had... Uh, significant counts above any threshold that would affect our production and you know and I've done a lot of research and I think it was because we had a relatively diversified system my farm wasn't really located in an area with a lot of big farms directly around it that were using a lot of chemicals so I had a lot of uh, biodiversity in the insect populations I had a lot of natural predators if you will and things just kind of worked it was a but there were certainly times, especially with a, a pest called a flea beetle in the late spring into the early summer when we would lose an entire planting of a, an Asian green or a brassica. I mean, it was just full of holes. And But but again, that never bothered me because a lot of my cost was having to pick it and ship it. So I obviously didn't pick it, so I just moved on and did something else. <laughs> a very relaxed approach. Yeah, it wasn't, and my wife, on the other hand, she was not as relaxed. She, you know, she was probably. A I lot, don't think most people would yeah. look and look out at their, you know, their earnings and say, "Oh well, you know, a planet, it's, it's eaten now. We'll just move on to the next one." Yeah. <laughs> but is it? It must be. It's a tough life, right? You know, it's it's it has it's it has great rewards because you're out and you're out on the soil and you're you're back with nature, but. For farmers in the Hudson Valley, obviously in the tri-state area, everyone wants to be serving into New York City because, I think you mentioned earlier, it's a $10 billion industry down there with the restaurants. opportunity, yeah. Or opportunity. So, you know, the opportunities are there to make great money, and there are definitely, you know, there's restaurants opening every week who will take from you. But is it financially viable to, to operate a, a small-scale farm in New York? Well, really, I mean, it's like anything else. It's based on your cost structure. It's easy to make money in farming. If you, grow, if you grow something well and you have lots of it, you can sell it. So you get a nice income stream. The real challenge is with the cost side of your business. What did it cost you in terms of labor, equipment? Uh, one of the unique problems, I think, in the Hudson Valley is the price of land. Uh, so your startup costs, your capital costs to get started are excessive. I mean, for most people... The, the cost of entry, it, it just doesn't work. But mm. then once you're even up and running, you know, we, we have significant land taxes here, school taxes, land taxes. That's a, a, lo- you know, it's a large percentage of my costs. We were able to do it because we were a family farm. My children from their earliest age worked 10, 12-hour days, really 16, 18, but I, I feel bad when I say that. Uh, it wasn't fair. Uh, and, and we did. But, you know, when you're farming, it's invigorating. You kind of over time, you you execute on a higher plateau. I mean, in season, it's just go, go, go. Mm. It's, you know, you wake up running and you collapse at the end of the day and it was a good day. But yeah, it's, 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 it's strenuous, but it, you know, it is rewarding. And again, there, there is opportunity. My, one of my greatest concerns is, as we look towards this next generation in this area, 
is making those opportunities accessible to new farmers. How do you um, think that can be done? Well, there's a number of different models, and, and we've done some good things already here in the Hudson Valley. Uh, we've uh, bought conservation easements on some properties that have limited the, the value of the farm in a, in a post-generation sale because the land must stay into perpetuity, into uh, open space at least, if not agriculture purposes. So you've taken away some of the financial potential should it be subdivided or developed. So that's kind of helped. Uh, but in reality, it hasn't helped as much as we thought it would help because there's a lot of people with a lot of money that can move up. You know, we're two hours north of New York, and they enjoy a nice pastoral bucolic farmhouse with a uh, hundred acres uh, just for the peace and quiet. So they, so the market is still competitive. They're worth those properties are worth much, much more than they really would be for a true agricultural purpose. So that's a big issue. But there are outfits, uh, you know, Scenic Hudson has done a great job. We have a couple new programs here in the Hudson Valley where we're working with young farmer education. There's a, a Glenwood Center in Cold Spring and a local economies project out of Kingston where they're actually taking in interns on existing uh, kind of uh, non-for-profit farms and providing them with the life skills they'll need and the business concepts that they might be able to make a go of it so you know we're we're working on it uh, but it's is is one of the most difficult things about working on a farm understanding the business dynamics of it because you know once you can get down and you can practice and you can work with the soil and understand how to grow your produce but actually figuring out how to make a business out of it is would that be something that is far more difficult than people give uh, give reason to. Well, I, I think it's on par with any other business. You know, if you're not inclined that way, it's difficult. If you have a good inclination to business, it's not that difficult. But to be successful, clearly, you have to be, you know, you got to be fluid. You have to make it work. So it is a key skill. Understandable. No yeah. Fair enough. Um, so just to go back to the food choices topic, because I want to touch on that a bit more briefly, because you're a guy who knows so much. You, you, you teach about it. Um, it's very overwhelming for people when they think that they can make an impact because they wonder where they can start because there are so many different avenues. You know, do you go down with the waste angle? Do you buy less of something? Do you consume more of something? What are some of the simple things that people can do to to be more efficient and more sustainable with their approach to life? Okay. I mean, there's, there are some real easy things. We've already talked about more of a plant forward. Just kind of reduce your animal protein consumption on, to some level and, and, and consume more plant-based foods. And in particular, with the plant-based foods, it goes a long way if you're buying the fresh ingredient. In other words, you're buying uh, you know, a head of lettuce versus a salad mix, for example. Uh, not only does that have less costs in our overall natural resource system, but it provides a much better return to the farmer. I mean, if you look at our agricultural system, and, and the USDA has done this food dollar series for a number of years, it probably would surprise a lot of people that in terms of the, the produce item or the whether it be a grain produce item produced, the farmer in general it gets on the order about eight cents of the dollar. And that's, that's just relatively almost tragic. It's a drastic when you, difference. When you think about how difficult it is and how many farms are just barely hanging on. And what's happened, where does a lot of that dollar go? Well, there's uh, processing, there's marketing, there's the retail component, uh, there's the transportation component. There's in our world today, there's legal fees associated with producing. So it all adds up. And, and really, the farmer is just getting the very small share. So if you buy a fresh item where you can kind of preempt a lot of those not only do you have less impact on the environment, but you're getting a better return to the actual producer. Uh, another area of, of interest to at least a lot of young people today is they're interested in the animal welfare component. Uh, in reality, in terms of what that does for the environment, which is my real focus, sometimes it's difficult to calculate, but if you have a strong uh, passion for the animal and you certainly would like to see uh, the animal cared for as best as possible. People are making decisions, buying animals that are, you know, they're free range, they're no longer in cages, all these things. And there is a number of different labels out there. So I, that's one area the students, without any uh, teaching, essentially, they come in with a, a pretty good understanding of animal welfare. Uh, but it, again, it's, it's a complicated area. I mean, we're trying to do some things through... Uh, 
through legislation. I know we've seen that California wanted to go with not allowing anything but a cage-free egg into the, into the state. Well, if you look at our cage-free egg production in this country, I guess California's not going to be eating eggs because it's, it means it's a dramatic model change. And if you say, well, damn it, it's the right thing to do, well, now you got to understand we're still going to grow them in layer houses, and as a consequence, we're going to make the houses much larger. So now we got all those embedded costs and the building the houses and the heating and the structures, which have... Uh, you know, somewhat negative effects overall on the environment. So the answers are not easy. When you look at sustainability, you really need to look at it in a, in a, a holistic sense, wide open rather than kind of reductionist view, looking at individual things within sustainability. Because sometimes we make choices that are are not for the greater good. Uh, yeah, because the, in, the, in the modern climate, which is very true, you know, we, I said this to you earlier, you have a much more leveled out approach than most people do because most people will isolate the topics and focus on one thing in particular, you know, to look at animal welfare and they won't look at how it affects the rest of the industry or the business or the economy for that matter. So I agree with you in that sense, but I still believe that it very much so comes down to a cultural shift um, and that simply comes down from, that comes from education because it's, it's very hard for that cultural shift to begin until people become aware well, and I think that was my point. With animal welfare, at least, I think there's already been a cultural shift. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have an awareness. And, and in reality, knowing a lot about farmers and have visited farms all over the country, I will tell you that even on our largest operations, the animals are largely cared for as best as they can be. I mean, it might not be a good production system, but the farmers in general uh, love their animals. They, you know, that's why they're farming. They... They take, and it surprises people, but they, they take uh, superior care, at least the best they can, again, within that system. But I always think back to a word that we don't hear a lot anymore, but it was in, in, in agricultural education, the term husbandry. I mean, that's, that term, when you think of that term, it just says a lot about how we evolved in terms of animal management, how much of a relationship we had with it. Today, we've kind of lost the sense of husbandry, and we think of it more as an economic production model. Husbandry? Husbandry. What is husbandry? Husbandry is just the care and, and well-being of, uh, of those uh, animals under your control. Lovely word. Yeah, it was a lovely word. And, <laughs> and I mean, there were the college courses, there were many of them that had husbandry in the title. And a little, and we see a little less of that today. Uh, but there's, you know, people that are really interested. There's a lot of uh, uh, philosophers out there, writings. I mean, Wendell Berry, anybody that's really interested in our food system and interested in, uh, you know, how we've transitioned, he's been pretty prolific in his writing. And he, he has a quote, I think it's something to the effect that to be interested in food but not food production is absurd. I mean, and that's really where we've been all along. We've always been interested in food, but we've neglected to understand the costs associated with production. And it wasn't that we were remiss. I think fundamentally the reason was we didn't have to be in the sense that we were blessed with a lot of natural resources. Uh, we had lots of water. We had lots of energy without consequence. When resources are abundant, they're, they're of no consequence. Once they start to become scarce, now all of a sudden you pay attention. And that's the key thing. We have transitioned to the point, not just within our food system, but within our, our society at large, I think, where many of our, our critical resources are starting to become scarce. And as a consequence, it's, pay, you know, it's time to pay attention and to start making some new choices. I'm in total agreement with you there, Daryl. Daryl, before we leave today's conversation... I want to end with how I end most conversations on this show. Um, what has food given you since you got into it, since you started with your farm, and now the career that you've had in CIA? What has it given you that you didn't have before? Uh, it, I, it's allowed me to, again, my passion for the outdoors and the environment has allowed me to connect with it on a, a different level. It's, it's a really applied connection. I can think of, you know, when I think of water, when I think of energy use, when I think of waste, when I think of greenhouse gases, I really can relate them to diet, to food, to, uh, and on a larger scale, maybe culture. 
the issues in biodiversity are huge. We didn't talk much about, but food is a, a you know, it's a primary driver. Our agricultural system has been a primary driver of a lot of recent extinctions. So, uh, so food has been my platform for connecting with my passion. I think, and and sometimes hard to separate the two. Is food the passion, or is it these external pieces? I don't know. If people want to get in touch with you, or if they want to come to your farm, where where can they find it? I know you have a. a a flower service there. Yeah, right now we uh, we don't have we no longer have a farm stand on the farm. Uh, we sell to a few restaurants and a couple farm stands. We do have a pick your own flower operation uh, in the town of Rhinebeck. It's right on the town line on Route Nine between Reddick and Rhinebeck. Of course, it's seasonal. There's a foot of snow on the ground there now, uh, and uh, I can be accessed here at the Culinary Institute of America. At Hyde Park, if you go online, uh, we have a directory for all faculty. I'm Daryl Mosier, M-O-S-H-E-R, and I would be glad to respond or talk with anyone who has an interest or passion in this area. Wonderful, Daryl. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for showing me around CA today. And I would encourage anyone who is ever up in the upstate area of New York to come here because the restaurants are incredible. You get to see young people who are learning their trade and the food that they get to produce and the grounds are gorgeous. Yeah, they're they are all welcome. We have, we have a lot of visitors. Yeah, and it's a very welcoming place. Thanks very much, Daryl. Well, Thanks thank for joining me on my food. I really enjoyed that episode and I want to say such a huge thanks to the Culinary Institute of America for being so hospitable, for showing me around the grounds, the various restaurants, the lecture halls, and just being able to meet some of the faculty there. They were extremely friendly. And for anyone who is interested in going to the Culinary Institute of America, I would recommend going and visiting it. Or if you happen to be upstate, just stopping by and seeing the wonderful education resources that they have up there. It's a beautiful place and it's it really is so warm and welcoming. Next week, I'm really looking forward. We're going to have Ben Flanner on the show. He is the founder of Brooklyn Grange. He previously worked in finance before opening the world's biggest urban farm, which is in Long Island City and in Red Hook in Brooklyn. I also have to say a huge thank you to the Heritage Radio Network. If it wasn't for them, this show wouldn't be available and nor would be the other 34 shows that are available on the network. If you want to get more information and in more provided more information on shows on the network, please visit heritageradionetwork.org. I also want to give a huge thank you to David Tadashore, who's been our producer for this week. For anyone who wants to get in touch with any questions or wants to provide any information on short stories that they have, please do by emailing whitefood at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>